Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello, I'm Freddie Sayers, and this is Unheard. Back in March, everyone's world suddenly changed. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. So on day one of lockdown, we launched Lockdown TV, a place where we could gather experts, scientists, writers, politicians, thinkers, to try to help us understand what was going on in this strange moment and what kind of world we were going to get at the end of it. And now, due to popular demand, here we are in podcast form. Welcome to Lockdown TV. Well, in recent weeks, we've been talking a lot about herd immunity and different strategies for dealing with COVID-19. And one name that comes up a lot is Dr. Scott Atlas. These are, these are inappropriate and destructive policies. I'm, I'm sort of disgusted and dismayed at the state of things. He is a healthcare policy academic from the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. And he's kind of become the latest lightning rod in the controversy around COVID-19 policy. We recorded this interview with Dr. Atlas back in October when the election campaign was in full swing. At the time of recording, he was senior advisor to President Trump and a member of the president's coronavirus task force. He spoke to me from inside the White House, just a few doors down from the president. Dr. Atlas, hi. Thanks for having me. Nice to be here. So you are a special advisor to the president and a member of the coronavirus task force. Um, who at the moment is making the decisions about White House policy on coronavirus? The president. It's always been that way. And how does the how does the advice get to him? Are you now the kind of conduit of that collective advice? Uh, how do the different voices on the coronavirus task force combine to provide advice to the president? Well, there are recommendations uh, from a lot of places to the president. Uh, I, I am a person who has recommendations to the president. Uh, various other recommendations and discussions are heard from the task force. Uh, he also listens to people from outside the government, outside the task force, inside the government. So there's a variety of people, uh, which is appropriate because uh, it's a complicated situation. And it's, it's not just about one facet. It's, uh, in fact, that's, that's why I was brought in here, because 
my, my background is uh, I'm a healthcare policy person and I have a, a background in medical science, but I can, uh, my role really is to translate medical science into public policy. That's very different from being an epidemiologist or a virologist with a single uh, sort of limited scope or limited view on, on things. Then we have people like Dr. Fauci, um, who is also a, a public health policy guy. I mean, how should people outside interpret both you and him being advisors to the president and yet with apparently such different views? Well, I don't speak for Dr. Fauci uh, at all. Uh, he's one. He's just one person on the task force. That's uh, there are several people on the task force. Uh, you know, uh, and his background is virology, immunology, infectious disease. That's his approach. Uh, it's a very different background. It's a it's a more limited approach. And uh, you know, uh, I don't speak for him, and I don't speak for anybody. I speak for the interpretation of the data and the uh, subsequent. Uh, evolution of that data into the best public policy advice that I can give the president of the United States. So there was a, a story in the Financial Times, uh, I think a couple of days ago, saying that you are now advocating a herd immunity policy, uh, and that that is now the official position of the White House. Is that the case? No. Uh, it's it's a repeated, you know, distortion, lie, whatever word you want to say. Uh, frankly, I didn't, I didn't really read the piece. I used to have time to read the Financial Times, but I don't have much time these days. Um, but uh, in any event, there, there's some kind of a, you know, strange uh, distortion, a persistent uh, sort of attempt to characterize my advice and the policy of the White House and the policy of other people into something that uh, some people have called a herd immunity strategy, quote unquote. And uh, what they mean by that is survival of the fittest, let the infection spread through the community and uh, then develop a population immunity. That, that's never been the policy that I've advised that's never been the policy that's ever even been discussed inside the White House, not even for a single minute. And that's never been the policy of the president of the United States or anybody else here. So I have to say that I've said that many, many times. I've explicitly and uh, precisely in, in these words and even stronger words denied that is a policy or a recommendation of me uh, yet, uh, it persists like so many other things, hence the term that the president is fond of using called fake news, uh, because it's an accurate term. So, the, so what, I guess, what, I, guess what, I have to ask, what, what is your advice to the president if it's yeah, not my that? Policy, uh, my policy, my advice is uh, exactly this. It's a three-pronged strategy. Number one, aggressive protection of high-risk individuals and the vulnerable, typically elderly and those with comorbidities. Number two, uh, allocate resources so that we prevent hospital overcrowding so that people can be treated for this virus. And also, 
get the other serious medical care that is needed. And number three, open schools, societies, uh, and you know businesses, because keeping them closed is enormously harmful. In fact, it kills people. That's the strategy. That is very different from just saying, open the barn door, as we say in the United States, and uh, let an infection spread through the community. That, that's never been the policy. I've never recommended that. But what I have done, and what everyone else who understands basic immunology uh, is understand that population immunity is a biological phenomenon that occurs. It's sort of like, uh, you know, if you're building something in your basement, uh, it's down on the ground because gravity puts it there. Uh, it's, it's simply, uh, it's not a strategy uh, uh, to say that herd immunity exists Herd immunity uh, is obtained when a certain percentage of the population becomes resistant or immune to an infection, uh, whether that is by uh, getting infected or getting a vaccine or a combination of both. In fact, if you don't believe that herd immunity exists as a pathway to block, as a way to block the pathways to the vulnerable in an infection, then you would never really advocate or believe in giving widespread vaccination. That's the whole point of it. Is it fair to say, though, that since your arrival at the White House, the policy has shifted in that direction? I mean, is the three-pronged strategy you describe, which is based on protecting the vulnerable and placing as much emphasis as possible on opening society, is that now officially the White House policy to coronavirus? It is the White House policy to coronavirus, but uh, interestingly, it always was. Well, the president started this whole uh, sort of observation with something that I, I think was uh, overlooked by most people in the world and most governors and states in the United States. When he said in the third week of March, uh, the cure cannot be worse than the problem. The cure cannot be worse than the disease. And that that uh, is a very common sense, very smart, wise statement, uh, particularly since we've learned how enormously harmful the lockdowns and the restrictions of individuals and families and school openings have been on society. In April, the White House released a formal Reopening Up America or Opening Up America document. And in that document, it was explicitly stated that we, they, the White House at the time, I didn't come till the end of July. In April, it was stated extreme protection of the vulnerable, opening up schools and businesses safely. Uh, and preventing hospital overcrowding. And every, uh, there, there are dozens of statements by the president since then, uh, up to even uh, a couple of weeks ago, saying explicitly we're going to aggressively protect the vulnerable and open up society. Now, that is not necessarily uh, the strategy that, that much of the world uh, believes in, uh, or at least has until this point. And uh, we know that. Uh, because we've seen societies repeatedly locked down, use prolonged lockdowns, use use uh, terms like we must hunker down, we must restrict movements, we must keep schools from opening, we must keep colleges from opening, we must test, 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 and uh, restrict businesses and restrict restaurants to 25% occupancy, et cetera. As you, as you know, uh, that is not his policy. Is it the case then that the first round of lockdowns in the spring you now and the president now believes were a mistake and that you wish they hadn't happened? Or do you think that they were necessary, but you don't want to see them happen again? 
I don't think they were a mistake. Uh, I think we can use the uh, retrospective eye on things, but in reality, when this this uh, virus first was noticed, uh, you know, there were a lot of things that were not known. In fact, very little was known. You know, the estimated case fatality rate was three or four percent. It was three point four percent. That was a horrendous number. There were all kinds of uh, things that needed to be done, resources were not available, no no one was really uh, prepared for something like this, it was blindsiding the entire Western world. So uh, this whole concept of the 15-day or the 30-day shutdown was done uh, out of, you know, of the information we had at hand, and also this concept of so-called flattening the curve. And I think everyone by now knows flattening the curve, although many have forgotten, Flattening the curve was intended to prevent hospital overcrowding and also uh, use that time to help develop uh, and produce personal protective equipment, accelerate drug development, mobilize resources for hospital uh, capacity, personnel shifts, all kinds of things. Were you in favor of those at the time on that basis? I thought it was reasonable to uh, the immediate short term shutdown was a reasonable policy. I mean, the models that were completely wrong in retrospect and worst case scenarios were frightening. Uh, and, it, you know, at the time, I think everyone sort of bought into this initial short term uh, shutdown. What happened, though, as you know, and as everyone who's ever seen any of your tapes uh, has, has known, is that that became a prolonged, ill, Ill, uh, Ill thought out uh, and harmful uh, policy that has stretched into months and months in various degrees. That is, is the wrong policy. That I am completely opposed to. And that is a policy that the president uh, thought was wrong even as early as March, when, of course, that's about when I thought it was wrong, too. So let's dig in a little bit to what you would actually like to see happen from now on. So. The idea is to protect those people who are at most risk from the disease and as much as possible allow the rest of society to open up. At least here we've had a similar, in the UK we've had a similar debate and it's met with the following objections. So I wonder how you respond to them. The, the first is people say that immunity from COVID-19 is not a long-term effect. So it will taper off after a period. So hopes of reaching a kind of widespread herd immunity are ill-founded. What do you say to that? Uh, I just think that the viewers have to understand that this is not like we lock down and uh, and hope for herd immunity or, or we hope for herd immunity. That's not the issue. The issue is we must open up because we're killing people in the United States. And I know you didn't ask me this, but I think it's important to say right up front. This is just U.S. numbers. And then I'll talk about something else. In the U.S., it was just it was just uh, the data came out a few days ago that 46 percent of the six most common cancers were not diagnosed during this shutdown. OK, these people, the cancers are there. They didn't disappear. These are people that will present to the hospital or to their doctor with more later stage disease, more widespread disease. Many of these people will die. Six hundred fifty thousand Americans are on chemotherapy. Half of them didn't come in for their chemo because they were afraid. Uh, you know, two thirds of screenings for cancer were not done. Half of children immunizations, childhood immunizations did not get done. Eighty five percent of living organ transplants did not get done. 
Uh, and then we see the other harms, 200,000 cases plus of child abuse in the United States during the two months of spring school closures were not reported because schools are the number one agency where child abuse is noticed. We have one out of four American young adults, college age adults, 25% thought of killing themselves in the month of June due to the lockdown. This is the topic that's, this is why you open up. That is the reason to open up. The reason a secondary gain might be herd immunity or population immunity, but the reason to open up is what I've articulated. And I think I wanna say one more thing, which again, is never talked about in the United States. It may be, and I think it is by people like Sinatra Gupta in, in the UK. And that is that all of these harms are massive for the working class and the lower socioeconomic groups. The people who are uh, upper class, the people who are working and can and work from home like you're doing right now, uh, the people who can sip their latte and you know complain that their children are underfoot or they have to come up with some extra money to hire a tutor privately, these are people who are not impacted by the lockdowns. But most people must go to work. Most people have no money to hire tutors. Most people are paralyzed when their children are not in school. That's the reason to open up. There are many things not known about, the, about this uh, virus. There are many things not known about every single infectious disease known to man, by the way. Uh, now, immunity and resistance to infection and susceptibility to infection are all related. Uh, we don't know how long someone's uh, immunity lasts to this, but this is a coronavirus. This is not a completely novel family. It's in a family of viruses called coronaviruses. And coronaviruses are in the basic immunology textbooks. And coronavirus exposure uh, typically has a year or even a few years of immunity. And so we can make a first guess that that probably that is a good chance that that will happen. Second of all, yes, we know antibodies disappear. And there are several studies in the literature on this virus that show that antibodies are transient. But that's true for every infection. That's true for that's a typical scenario. That's not a cause for panic. Why? Because we know that there is resistance to infection, or should I say, protection from infection, protection from severe disease. This seems to be uh, coming out in the literature on this disease too, that is not necessarily due to purely antibodies. There are other components of an immune system uh, and it's still work it being worked out in the literature, but uh, suffice it to say this, do we know that people have immunity or protection? You, you'd have, you don't have to be a scientist to understand that when you have hundreds of millions of cases. The estimate, the most recent estimate I saw from John Ioannidis, a Stanford epidemiologist, is that about 10% of the world's population has had this infection. And that means 780 million people. And do you know how many cases of reinfection there are? At the most, five. And it used to be three until two more came out this week. In the world, three to five cases of reinfection out of hundreds of millions of people who've had this. So to think that we must panic because we, we don't know if people are immune. Well, I mean, you, you don't need to be a, a PhD molecular biologist to understand the common sense and the basic immunology that we know for decades and decades is that it is not true that there's no immunity from this. That would be 
a bizarre conclusion to make, given even what we know. Uh, I just want to come back on actually something you said a bit earlier, which is detailing all of these terrible impacts, um, secondary impacts of lockdowns. Um, I think what people, opponents would say to that is that a lot of these things are essentially impacts of the virus. If, if the general public is frightened, uh, they're not going to come into hospital. Uh, it's not that someone has said don't come into hospital, it's that they're, they feel afraid. Yes, that, that's, a, that's a good question, uh, but I think that there's an answer to that, which is this is one of the biggest failures of the voices of public health in the United States and in the world, is to in, that they instilled fear. They, they specifically instilled fear with their proclamations, their, uh, their statements that, oh, we don't know this, we don't know that, as if we knew nothing about immunology, as if we knew nothing about viral infections, as if we knew nothing about coronaviruses. Uh, and the models that were put forth that were worst case scenario models that were just hideously wrong. And the media that has hyped up these rare exceptions like multi-system inflammation in children's even though we know the overwhelming evidence is that this disease is, is not high risk for children. It's absolutely not high risk for children. So all of these sort of uh, hyperbole, the sensationalizing and the failure of public health officials to articulate what we know instead of what we don't know has instilled fear. And I agree with you, it's the fear, but the fear is due to what was said by the so-called experts, by the media, and by the uh, really a failure to understand that they were instilling fear or failure to care they were instilling fear. And we see it today, every single day. What role do you think the president has had in this though? You know, I mean, he has been, in the beginning he was playing it down, then he was suddenly taking it very seriously. He was not wearing a mask and then he suddenly wore a mask. He devolved it to the governors or then he told them what to say. And then he got the disease. Do you really think that the president has helped assuage fears with a consistent and reliable attitude to this? Well, I think what the president tried to do uh, was articulate the problems with uh, this single vision misguided policy from the beginning, as I said. And he's clearly had a consistent uh, statement, multiple, multiple statements uh, over, over uh, you know, months about what he thought the policy was. We live in a federalist system here. This is not an authoritarian. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's, super, it's not supposed to be uh, a very super powerful centralized government here. The states are, are run by governors. Uh, it, it is not a nothing is really supposed to be done by federal mandate here, or at least very little is. Uh, and I think it was appropriate what the president did to say, listen, you know, we're I mean, actually, we could see it right now from my last question, really, which is it's appropriate for a public leader to try to calm people down, to have an articulated, all-encompassing vision of what should be done. It's not appropriate to panic like so many leaders did, like so many, even some have admitted that they panicked, whether in the United States as governors or in Europe and elsewhere. It's not appropriate. It's never appropriate to have fear. There is no such thing as an, a, a government leader who's competent who instills fear in the public. So no, I disagree that the president uh, was wrong in doing, uh, in, in trying to allay fears. I'd just like to move on to the second kind of big objection to the policy you, you outlined, which is, and it's been talked about a lot here, which is that it sounds good to just defend or protect people who are vulnerable or allow them to protect themselves and let everyone else get on with their lives. But practically, it's impossible. So you have multi-generational families where grandparents live with grandkids. You have schools that are obviously a, a mix everybody up into different households. You have carers who need to look after elderly people. Do you feel like you have a detailed plan for how you could achieve protection of people with letting other people get on with their lives? And there, there's different levels of this. The first is to put forward the guidelines. And I think our society has learned. No one knew what social distancing meant. No one knew, uh, really, even though we were supposed to do that for people who were sick with the flu, avoid symptomatic people, and be careful around elderly people. But that really was never had the microscope like this. So we, that was a foreign concept, and we now understand that. Uh, but there are more specific measures. And, and what the United States has, has done... Uh, and you know, uh, tried to do, and it's imperfect, of course, uh, is focus on first the nursing home. So we have shipped every single nursing home point of care rapid testing. We need to test the people who enter the nursing homes because that's how the infections get in. So we have mandated 
a weekly uh, testing of every staff who enters a nursing home, but every time there's community increase, whether it's by clinical criteria of people going to the emergency rooms or testing, either one, we recommend going up to two times a week, three times a week, four times a week for staffing. We have hooked up our nursing homes with infection control uh, mentoring programs with hospitals because nursing homes don't know how to do that like hospitals do. We have incorporated surge testing into nursing homes. We have sent tens of millions of tests to senior centers where certain people don't live, but they seniors frequent two times a week, three times a week. We have an alert system that we've tried to do in communities where seniors with high comorbidities live because everybody over 65 in the US has government insurance. So yes, there are specific measures we've taken, but it's, it's difficult. So I think you could see how that would work just about with a nursing home if they had the tests and if they had the capacity. But if you're a, a grandmother, a vulnerable grandmother living with a student who is either at high school or college, coming in and out every day with friends, how can you possibly protect that elderly person? Okay, well, we, we can do our best. Uh, we, we cannot guarantee that we can protect everybody. There's no such thing as no risk in life, uh, but not to minimize it. We've had 200,000 people die here. It's very serious and tragic. And I know people who have died and, and I understand that. Uh, but we, we have to educate people. We have sensitized everyone to making sure. I think it's it, you would have to have not been living on this planet to not understand social distancing uh, guidelines for hygiene. If you're gonna be in close proximity to someone who's high risk, you might wanna wear a mask. There's all kinds of things to do. And we have we have incorporated that. We have also uh, done a lot of uh, monitoring of communities. Uh, we have, like I say, targeted where the seniors live, uh, meaning non-residential, but in their communities, because in the US, uh, senior citizens typically have a social life where they interact with others in these uh, community centers. We have shipped a lot of testing to there, tens of millions of state-of-the-art point-of-care testing. We're not just sitting here doing nothing. On the other hand, uh, you know, we, we there is a certain amount of uh, of issues on, on other levels. I'll give you an example. I have a 93-year-old mother-in-law, and she said to me two months ago, I'm not interested in being confined in my home. I'm not interested in it living if that's the life. This is somebody who's totally independent. She said, I'm old enough to take a risk. I understand social distancing. I'm going to function. Otherwise, there's no reason to live. And so this sort of bizarre, uh, maybe well-intentioned, but misguided uh, idea that we're going to eliminate all risk from life, we're going to stop people from taking any risk that they are well aware of. We're going to close down businesses. We're going to stop schools. These are, these are inappropriate and destructive policies. And I think we have to always remember that. We don't shut down society uh, because there's a massive cost of that. And I'm not talking about financial. I'm talking about life's lost, years of life lost, destructive, destructive policies. Uh, so okay, there are risks, you know, we, we know that, but we have to function. And I think most people understand that. You are um, at the Hoover Institution in Stanford, which is a kind of uh, right-leaning uh, organization. You advised Mitt Romney, and obviously you're now advising President Trump. Um, there's a political aspect to this, isn't there? That people who are of a more libertarian viewpoint, who put a greater emphasis on individual freedom, will tend to support your view, 
uh, well, people who think that collective action is a more effective response to this kind of thing will tend to re support greater restrictions. Do you see this as a political question? I, I see that there is a different philosophy in life. I, you know, uh, in my own family, I have different. Uh, we have different uh, views on certain things. But I think we have to start by looking at the facts and the data. And you know, one thing that's been uh, sort of really uh, shocking to me is, uh, you know, in the U.S. and I think all over the world, we have a, a really uh, contaminated media. Their, their politics has really uh, distorted truth. And that used to be something that I was proud of in the U.S. as an American, that the truth will come out because the media was aggressive at finding the truth. I think that's changed. And there, it's undeniable that there's a tremendous amount of bias in the media. And um, this is a set in leading into your, your question. I think that has now contaminated public policy and science. Uh, there's been a massive distortion, a, a, a complete almost disregard for objectivity in certain places, including some of what were the world's best journals like Lancet, New England Journal, Nature, Science. I mean, I, I don't, these people feel compelled to be uh, politically uh, visible. And, you know, I just think that's contaminated the discussion. Uh, and a lot of the papers that have been published have been what I call garbage in my limited vocabulary, uh, because when you look at the real methods section of these papers, they've been really poorly done, yet they are uh, given the imprimatur of these journals. Now, uh, the politics of discussion here, as I sort of am uh, circuitously getting to, uh, really comes down to first and foremost, what is the data? Okay, and that data has been ignored. There are people that started out in March, April, uh, saying, uh, okay, we need to lock down, we need to stop asymptomatic cases from spreading, this is how we're going to go about doing things. And then when we know that now uh, there are 7 million registered cases uh, in the US, but even the CDC says it's probably tenfold that, that's 70 million at least. We look at the world's cases, maybe 40 million cases, but we know that it's probably 10 to 20 times that. And so that's not, uh, it's not, it's not possible to start doing things like contact tracing and isolating asymptomatic people. And we also have learned the harms, the enormous harms of doing that kind of policy. So that's part of the data. Okay, so the, the data really isn't just what does the uh, fatality rate, and uh, by the way, we know the fatality rate for people under 70 is 0 0.05 rather than 3.4 or tenfold or something like that. Uh, you know, all these things are learned. We know so much more about this. Now we have to get a grip on what we're doing here. And it's not a political philosophy, it's reality. Uh, you know, a lot of these people who have what I call very fancy CVs, have engaged in very sloppy thinking. And now, because I, I believe partly because it's a political year in the United States, which a massively polarized electorate, uh, the politics has entered the scene. And there's a tremendous amount of uh, sort of digging in to the original beliefs, even though they're completely wrong. It's been proven wrong what was suggested. There's, there's an adherence to this, partly from the politics, partly because whatever... Uh, listen, when I came into the administration, my position here is not political, zero politics. My motivation was the president of the United States 
ask me, a public health care, a health care policy person who understands medical science, to help in the biggest health care crisis in the century. And there'd be something wrong with you if you would say no to that, no matter what your politics. My position is not political. My position is looking at the data, figuring out the right policy. And so when I did that, though, I knew I would be vilified because in the United States, you know, there's there's a lot of people who think that this president is radioactive. And so there is a massive destruction that ensues immediately when you associate with this president. And, and that's just a very sad statement on America. It's a very sad statement on American culture. It's a very sad statement on the world because I see it in the international news too, of course. Uh, these people are, are blinded people. I'm saying, you know, scientists, many of whom are blinded to the data because they, dis they despise the political side of this and they're digging in. And uh, they have they have a massive. I just want to finish it. They have a massive ego, and these people can't admit they're wrong. And so when they're challenged, and I'm I, okay, I'm a contrarian. I'm used to being a contrarian. I'm proud of being a contrarian. I'm proud of being an outlier when the when the inliers are wrong. And so I have no problem with it. I'm talking about the data here. I have zero political motivation to come here and do this. In fact, it's to my own personal detriment to be here. Uh, but that doesn't matter because I'm trying to help the country. Are you angry? You sound a little bit angry about the, the I'm, attitude. I'm a, I'm, I'm, okay, I, I've gone through uh, various levels of being angry. Uh, I'm not angry. I'm, I'm sort of disgusted and dismayed at the state of things. Uh, you know, I have a massive amount of support. It, it, it's just sad to me. It's more that I'm, uh, I'm cynical about about the state we are in right now and the future. And, and it's I'm not sure it's angry as much as uh, disturbed. Uh, and I have children of my own who are in their 20s. And I just wonder what the future is if, if we have lost truth in the media to a great extent, and we have now starting to lose truth in science. I mean, I don't know what kind of a future that that holds for people that are young. In less than, well, three weeks, we have a presidential election. Uh, if the polls are even half right, uh, President Trump will be out of office. Um, what's the prognosis? I mean, if, if, president, if Joe Biden becomes president, um, what do you think happens as regards the coronavirus policy? That's a good question. Uh, you know, I, I've heard uh, proclamations like, uh, sort of listen to the science. I mean, that's one of the biggest, uh, you know, misconceptions about the president that he doesn't listen to the science. We have, as you know, uh, 9,000 medical scientists and epidemiologists just sort of aligned very closely with this protected, uh, you know, uh, vulnerable and open society policy, this so-called Great Barrington Declaration, which is the gist of their policy. Thousands of scientists agree with the president, and the president has always listened to the scientists. But the other side somehow says, listen to the science, if we'll maybe consider another lockdown and mandatory universal masks. That's their policy. Uh, I think it's uh, it's very sad. It's completely contrary to the science. It's fear-mongering, and it shows a lack of insight into what's gone on uh, over the past seven, eight months. So I fear for the country if that is the policy direction here.
The country should not be locking down. It cannot be locking down. And uh, things like universal mask wearing, uh, honestly, I mean, that is just completely contrary to the science as well as common sense to think that you must wear a mask when you're in the middle of a desert, when you're in your car alone driving, when you're bicycling through, uh, you know, uh, St. James Park. Uh, you know, this, this kind of stuff is nonsense. Would you not mandate masks anywhere? Absolutely uh, not widespread mask mandates. They're, they're, you know, there's, you can look at city, LA County and Los Angeles here, Miami-Dade County, uh, many states in the US, the Philippines, Spain, France, the UK, all over the world mandating masks for the population does not stop cases. That is just super naive wrong and just uh, there's that's garbage uh, science really and there is no science to support that and the WHO does not recommend widespread mandatory masks the NIH does not recommend that uh, the CDC data itself shows that that doesn't work so that's that's sort of uh, bordering on uh, carrying a wearing a copper bracelet as far as I'm concerned uh, you know, do you do I, I do think that masks have a role uh, and that's in medicine. We wear masks for surgical procedures. Uh, and the reason you wear a mask is when you're very close to somebody uh, or a sterile environment like an open incision, uh, you want to have you want to stop a cough. You want to stop droplet uh, from getting in and infecting something. But that's very different from breathing uh, around a, 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 a piece of cloth or a, even a medical mask. You know, that, that just uh, there's no evidence that uh, if you're if you're not if you're socially distanced, there's no reason to wear a mask. If you're in a subway, I'm just thinking practically here. If you're in a subway, uh, you're, you're in the tube in London and uh, you're a high risk person. OK, I, I, I would I'd be afraid I, I probably wouldn't even go into the subway if I were a high risk person in London. Uh, but I would I would contemplate I would use a mask for for close proximity to somebody uh, who might cough on me or who I might uh, cough onto. Yeah, so I think there's a reasonable policy about masks, but widespread universal masks, that is pseudoscience. It may all be over for you, at least in this chapter uh, in a few weeks time. You then returned to a university campus that is somewhat treating you like a bit of a pariah. There were big letters being written by your uh, fellow academics against what you were saying in public. What's life going to be like for you wandering down the street of Stanford uh, in late November if the president loses? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I think people, again, like they exposed themselves for who they were when they wrote that letter. Uh, you know, I didn't like the letter. Uh, it's embarrassing to them. I mean, it's, it's preposterous what was said. Uh, and you know, I have a, a massive amount of support from many of the world's top scientists and epidemiologists. By the way, I have been working with them for six, seven, eight months. It's not—it's uh, ludicrous to to think otherwise. But in any event, uh, you know, I have a lot of support uh, inside Hoover Institution. Uh, I've had a lot of support from the faculty. It's ironic that I work with the two top and maybe the three top medical science infectious disease doctors at the School of Medicine. They didn't sign that letter. A bunch of people who were not experts signed the letter. Uh, so that's that's sort of separate. I, 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 um, I certainly have lost some friends. There's no question about that. Uh, would I do it all over again? Absolutely. This is the most important thing I've ever done. 
you know, uh, you're not in academic, uh, you know, health policy to write papers. You're there to have an impact on public policy. And the president and I feel the country needed good people uh, because if the good people don't step up, then who's left? And so it almost almost up. sounds like a political uh, slogan there. I mean, are you uh, have you got a taste for it? Do you think there's potentially a political career for Scott Atlas in the future? Oh, I, I have a taste for it, but unfortunately, it's a bad taste. Uh, I'm not going to do anything in politics. I, I'm I'm disgusted by politics, completely disgusted, uh, and I'm 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 saddened by uh, again. Uh, it, it's a it's a sad statement on on the people. I, I feel that people were exposed when someone came into power that they didn't agree with, they were exposed for who they were. Uh, and and that's, a, that's a gross embarrassment. It's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it's sad. So, uh, you know, I never thought I would think uh, that there are more rational places in the world to live than the United States, because I'm proud to be an American. I'm proud of uh, people who are independent thinkers, uh, but a lot of that has, has changed. I think that there's a lot of groupthink going on. It's a tremendous amount of emotion rather than, uh, you know, uh, rational thought, and, and it's been harmful. So uh, I don't know what my future holds, but I, 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 I absolutely do not. You, is that a hint that well, you would leave the country? Uh, I, you know, I always do a lot of traveling as an invited speaker. Before before this part of my life, I was an invited professor, you know, in many places. And uh, I, I think uh, I think the world is sort of uh, the world is big. Uh, I, I I don't know what I'll do. Uh, you know, I, I I love certain parts of uh, of of my life in the U.S. and. Uh, but I'm, I'm also, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sort of sad about, about certain things in the U.S., how they've evolved. And, you know, we'll see. Uh, I'm not going to run for office, though, I can tell you that. Fair enough. Well, it sounds like you might not be uh, rushing back to Stanford uh, to spend all your time there in any case. Uh, we shall see what happens in the next few weeks. Dr. Atlas, thanks for talking to us. Okay, thanks for having me. Our thanks to Scott Atlas for taking the time to talk us through his thoughts and not hold back. It's not every day that you get a senior advisor to the president just holding forth on everything he thinks. So thanks to him for that. Um, I should say that by the time you hear this, I have no idea whether President Trump will still be president. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget you can watch all of our podcast interviews on our YouTube channel. Find us under Unheard and make sure to subscribe for all the latest. Thanks for joining. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.